Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your people poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people, give deliverance to the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor. May they fear you while the sun endures, and as long as the moon, throughout all generations. May he be like rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days, may the righteous flourish and peace abound, till the moon be no more. Those are the first seven verses of Psalm 72, which is the psalm appointed for today, Wednesday, March the 16th, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being with me today. Continuing our look at the book of Jeremiah today from chapter 3, verses 6 to 18, in John's Gospel, chapter 5, verses 1 to 18, and then the letter to the church at Rome, chapter 1, verse 28, through chapter 2, verse 11. So the Lord's bringing his case through Jeremiah against his people, Judah, the southern kingdom, the one that's based in Jerusalem. So he's bringing his case against them. Now, remember what I said yesterday. This is about 100 years prior to this. The the northern kingdom, sorry, the southern kingdom is Judah. The northern kingdom of Israel had been taken into exile by the Assyrians and then divided up among the nations, and so they were spread abroad, <clears throat> dispersed. Um, and so now here the uh, prophet brings the case against the people in the time of Josiah, who was, a, who was a great king. He was a great king of the Jews. He said, have you seen what she did, that faithless one, Israel? And when he says that, he's talking about that northern kingdom <coughs> that was based up in Samaria. How she went up on every high hill and under every green tree, and there played the whore. And so what happens in, in that worship that Ahab and Jezebel were at least partly to blame and largely to blame for this was the setting up the bales and the Asherah poles. And you do this on high places and under green trees because it's fertility cult. And so you get up on the high hill so that, that it's easier for you to be seen. You're ascending towards the heavens and under the green trees. It has to do with fruitfulness. And so it's chasing after these other gods in those places. And that's what it means that she played the whore. She played the whore with other gods. She was unfaithful to him. And I thought, after she has done all this, she'll return to me. But she did not return. And her treacherous sister, the southern kingdom, Judah, saw it. She saw that for all the adulteries of that faithless one Israel, I had sent her away with a decree of divorce. And that's that thing that that Jesus says Moses gave them the ability, men, the ability to divorce their wives by issuing this decree of divorce. And it's called a get. I mentioned it a couple of times. And so what what he says is, is that the people you're prophesying to saw all this and they saw me divorce her and send her away. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but she too went and played the whore. Because she took her whoredom lightly, she polluted the land, committing adultery with stone and tree. Yet for all this, her treacherous sister Judah did not return to me with her whole heart, but in pretense, declares the Lord. So Josiah's reforms changed much. It reestablished the worship of Yahweh. But what he's saying is, is that the people didn't really fully return. Josiah did. But the people didn't. It was, it was in order to get something else. It was in order to get prosperity. 
And the Lord said to me, Faithless Israel, again, the northern kingdom, has shown herself more righteous than treacherous Judah. Go and proclaim these words toward the north and say, Return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. Proclaiming to the north, because that was the northern kingdom. So he's, this, this is the lost tribes. Return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will not look on you in anger, for I am merciful, declares the Lord. I'll not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your guilt that you rebelled against the Lord your God and scattered your favors among foreigners under every green tree and that you have not obeyed my voice, declares the Lord. So he wants Israel to return, but only in truth, only based on repentance. Mercy is available to those who seek mercy, who recognize the need for that mercy and recognize their own sinfulness and waywardness. Return, O faithless children, declares the Lord, for I'm your master. I will take you, one from a city and two from a family, and I'll bring you to Zion. So I'll take the remnant and bring you back to the land, and I'll give you shepherds, leaders, after my own heart, who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. So those are religious leaders, they are uh, civic leaders, all of those who lead God's people. And when you've multiplied and been fruitful in the land, which is exactly what Adam and Eve were uh, told to do and exactly what the people of God were told to do, be fruitful and multiply. When you've multiplied and been fruitful in the land, in those days, declares the Lord, they shall no more say the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. It shall not come to mind or be remembered or missed. It shall not be made again. That's a very odd thing. It's a very strange thing because it's the, it's the footstool of the Lord. The Ark of the Covenant is that which contains the two tablets of the law. It's considered the footstool of the Lord. The judgment seat of God is on top of that, and the judgment's based on their faithfulness to his commandments. And so that's the reason that every year uh, at Yom Kippur they have to throw blood on the ark itself, to seal the judgments for the year because of the repentance of the people during that season of time. And so to say that the ark of the Lord, the covenant of the Lord, shall not come to mind or be remembered or missed and not be made again, there's got to be something else that's going to make atonement for the sin of the people. And the people will be righteous themselves, and so the judgments will be continually sealed. So this is, it's it's the is speaking of a time after final atonement has been made. And so there we are. And here we are, 2,000-plus years later. Now we can look back and say, that's already been done. We're not looking for the Ark of the Covenant because our sins have been permanently atoned for. There is no further sacrifice necessary. Jesus has sealed up those judgments against those who believe in him and who are redeemed by his blood. At that time, Jerusalem shall be called the throne of the Lord, and all nations shall gather to it, to the presence of the Lord in Jerusalem, and they shall no more stubbornly follow their own evil art. In these days, the house of Judah shall join the house of Israel, and together they shall come from the land of the north to the land that I gave your fathers for a heritage. And so what they were looking for in a Messiah was someone who would come and establish the rule and reign of God, the kingdom of God, on the earth with its center in Jerusalem. And so they're looking for this king who will reign eternally, who will come and conquer all their enemies and drive them out of the land and establish righteousness. So are we. That's exactly what we're waiting for. And we're waiting for him to return. 
we're waiting for, for the Lord to come back and deliver us from sin and death, finally and utterly, and, and end that on the earth. And so we're waiting for the establishment of that very same kingdom, and we read about that in the book of the Revelation where we see the one on the white horse who comes to judge in glory. So that's the promise that Jeremiah makes, it's going to, and it's going to include, he says, both kingdoms. It's going to include a remnant of both, and they're going to be brought back, and they're going to multiply, and they're going to fill the land. Jesus, remember, has, has, had been to Jerusalem for Passover and then went up to Samaria and then over to Galilee, and now there's another feast of the Jews, and Jesus goes back up to Jerusalem here in chapter 5, and in Jerusalem by the sheep gate, the way that they brought the sheep into the city for the markets, a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades, so it's covered. There's some covered area around this pool. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I'm going, another steps down before me. And so the, the water being stirred up through a pool from below was evidence that there was an angel there, and that angel was there in order for healing to happen. Well, those are two statements of faith, right? One is that that gets stirred up by an angel, and the second is when it gets stirred up, healing is possible. So they're there in faith waiting for this thing to happen. And this guy says, you know, because I'm an invalid, I need somebody to pick me up and put me into the water. <clears throat> and then somebody always gets there before I do because I move so slowly. And Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and he walked. So Jesus had asked him, do you want to be healed? And his response, although circuitous, was, yes, I would like to be healed. But, but he, instead, he gives him an excuse for why he hasn't been healed. And we see in a minute that he doesn't know who Jesus is. He, this is just a random conversation with somebody. But when Jesus says, get up, take up your bed and walk, the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. How did he know? Did he get up in faith or did he feel something in his body that, that said, I think I can actually do that? Now, the day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it's the Sabbath, and it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. It's actually one of those things that's prohibited on the Sabbath is carrying of a bed. I don't know how that applies to backpacking, to be honest with you. <clears throat> Can you backpack on the Sabbath? I'm not sure about that. But it's not lawful for him to take up his bed on the Sabbath. They had to, I mean, they were there. In the colonnades, they had to have seen this guy. They had to have known that he was there all that long. And instead of marveling at it, they're, they're picking on him for a Sabbath violation. <clears throat> they, he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. He commanded me to do it. They asked him, who's the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Because it's a sin to cause someone else to break the law. It's the reason that Jews are not allowed to cook on the Sabbath, right? So they're not allowed to do it because it's work. And so you'd think one way to get around it would be that you would hire a Gentile to do that. But the problem is you can't tell that person 
here's what I want for lunch or dinner on the Sabbath. Because the problem is, is that that you've caused them to sin, whether they're a Gentile or not, doesn't make any difference. It, it's your commandment, your control and power over them have caused them to sin. It's the reason that in Jewish law, you don't, and in, in um, any military law, you don't have to obey a commandment given to you that, that's illegal. And so here, that's what's happened, though. But Jesus can be held re- accountable and responsible for this guy's sin because he told him to do it. So he didn't know who Jesus was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. And afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you're well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. So it sounds as if that the, the, the man's... Um, his problem had been caused by sin. Sin no more that something worse may not happen to you. So Jesus is telling him, you know, get your get your act together and, and do the right things. And this, <clears throat> so the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And why would he do that? Because he's attempting to shift blame for his own sin to the one who had commanded him to do it. He can be innocent, as it were, because now he's got he's established that Jesus is guilty, so Jesus is actually the sinner in this situation. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered that my father's working until now, and I'm working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. That's the first time that's come up. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And so in their mind, he was a transgressor because he told people to sin on the Sabbath, to do things that were sinful. He did it with the blind, does it with the blind man in John 9. And then here in this, I mean, he, he specifically told him to take up his bed and walk. And so there, there is a, an evidence of rule breaking on the Sabbath. Does that make Jesus a sinner is the big question. Or is it just rule-breaking, and if it's rule-breaking, then is it not in evidence that then there's a larger goal, there's a larger purpose in mind? Jesus did tell him to do something that was very provocative, that was going to elicit a response from the Jews, and he knew it. He knew it at the moment that he told him to do it. In the Romans passage, remember yesterday we skipped over a little portion of this thing. I'm not going to go back and revisit that today because it's not that important. It just bothers me when you leave things out, and there's an agenda behind it. So, and since they did not see, they who had rejected evidence of God in creation, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And listen to the list that Paul's going to give us now. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. I mean, if you look back at at Genesis 6, what you see is the only intention of man's heart was only evil all the time. And that's exactly what Paul says. You know, he says, if you fail to acknowledge God, then all manner of evil begins to come out of it. I heard a talk show host here in Asheville one time saying, you know, I'm not sure that I'm a Christian, but I won't vote for an atheist. And he said the reason was because anybody who sees themselves as ultimately never accountable is somebody you can't trust. And I thought that was a really good way of looking for it. If there's no ultimate accountability for your actions, 
then if that's what you believe, then then what's to ever check it at all? Everything serves the goal, right? So um, it doesn't make any difference. As long as you consider your goal to be a noble goal, there's nothing that, that you can't do to further it because you're not ultimately accountable. If you can get away with it, you will. He says, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. And we see that all the time. We see the little um, echo chambers that are created that, that applaud wrongdoing. And echo chambers exist on both sides and all over the place. So I'm not picking one against another, but, but politics has displaced religion in some ways, in American society at least. And, and what you see then is there's no restraint on telling, the, uh, telling lies. There's no restraint on spinning things in the worst possible way and slandering people that you disagree with. He says, therefore, you have no excuse, O oh man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. I mean, you may do these things in quiet and in, you know, in, in the dark, but you're doing the same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. And so Paul is saying that it's the doing that matters. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you'll escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? If you want a perfect example of that, look at, um, look at Jonah, actually. Because in, what you see in Jonah is a man who's so convinced of God's mercy that he doesn't fear to run away from God until God actually puts him in the midst of a storm and then in the belly of a fish. And only then he's grudgingly obedient because he believes so much in God's mercy that there's almost nothing Jonah can't get away with and plead innocence at some level because, well, I know God. And, and yet he doesn't want that same mercy shown to the Babylonians. And so it's, 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 that's a good example of what it looks like to do what he says. Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? And that was exactly what it is with Jonah. And that's the reason when God raises the plant, to, or the vine, to grow up over the hut that he's made, Jonah's mad the next day when it dies. And so it's God's kindness that was meant to lead Jonah to repentance. But instead, he says, no, I want to die. And God says, do you do right to be angry over the plant like this? Yes, I do, angry enough to die. And he says, well, you wanted me to have compassion on the plant, but you didn't want me to have compassion on the Babylonians and when there are also much cattle there. And so that's exactly what that picture looks like, presuming on the riches of kindness and forbearance and patience, yet not knowing God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. That's the point of it. But because of your hard and impenitent hearts, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He'll render each one according to his works. So it is faith. The righteous are saved by faith, but that faith is made evident in works. To those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he'll give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. So 
Paul's argument is that we're all the same standing before God. There's no benefit to being Jewish. There's no benefit to being Gentile. There's only benefit in faith, and a faith that shows it out in works. It's important that we, we do that which fits with what we say we believe. All those things are important for us. We need always to follow the Lord and to do exactly as he wills. Now, we're not going to, at least my experience says we're not going to, but it is a call to us to keep our eyes open, to see him at work, and to do the works that he gives us to do, and to rid all those things that Paul lists from our lives, lest we be also liable to the subject of the charge of adultery to him.